and welcome to Logan Sounds Off, where I talk about books, music and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Logan Kelly. And welcome back to Logan Sounds Off. Today I am interviewing a very, a lot of people out there who love music will definitely know Graham Parker. He was massive on the scene and recently in 2023, he's been still making great music. So today I'm going to be spe- speaking to him about that and a whole lot more. So Graham, how are you? Very good, Logan. Nice to meet you. Yes, um, thank you for the introduction there. I have been going for quite a while and still am. One foot in front of the other, you know. It's fine, Graham. The pleasure is all mine. It's great to talk to you. Um, So, for those who are unfamiliar with your music, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? um, Well, my career started in, I was about 24, I guess, and the first album came out April 1976. Howling Wind, and um, I'd been like a lot of kids, uh, as soon as the Beatles and the Stones and all those beat groups in Britain started in, you know, when I was 12, really, all that stuff started to to go on. It was like having our own music and not our older cousins or older brothers' music, which was, you know, uh, Elvis Presley, perhaps, or, you know, Buddy Holly. It was like we had our own in Britain. These guys, you know, in those bands seemed to be, you know, not much older than us. And some of them lived not far from where we did. And suddenly there was something that we could call our own music. So everybody picked up an instrument. You know, I had a few kids, friends, and we 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 had a couple of uh, fake bands, really. I mean, we basically dressed up to look like, you know, sort of like the Beatles or whatever and pretended to play, but I never really bothered to learn until uh, much, much later. You know, I just went and did all kinds of different jobs, all kinds of work and left home when I was about 18 and um, lived in the island of Guernsey. And there was a lot of music in the air and uh, got myself an acoustic guitar. I played when I was, you know, 13. I was trying, but I wasn't, I never put the work into it. So it took me years to realize, you know, it's hard graph that gets you there, really bit of talent and you know a lot of perspiration and um things came together and i met a, a fellow named dave robinson eventually who had uh, managed bands and and heard he heard my songs and um it was very very impressed and um we did some demos and the next thing i know i've got a major record deal uh but you know i was wasn't a 17 year old at the time i was like some of the the, the beat groups were in the 60s i was in you know 20s and um but uh, I'm glad that it took me that long. I, I wasn't, you know, I, I needed to be ready for prime time before I made my first album. That's what I thought. I really thought I want to make albums, not like they're being made at the moment, which at that point in time and around the early 70s, there was there was a lot of records that were still based on the prog, prog rock ethos of, you know, you have two songs and they're pretty good and then you go into the studio and jam the rest and hope you'll get away with it. I wanted to make every song very good and there were a few current people around at the time earlier than me. Of course, David Bowie was one of them. I mean, he suddenly stopped wearing a dress and appearing at mid-bills and um, festivals and started writing songs like pop songs, rock songs that were 
all credible. And I wanted to do that, the same kind of thing for my first album. And I've tried to do that ever since. Um, you know, if people say there's a filler on that album, I don't agree. I don't, I worked hard for every one of the songs. And I, my ethos is that really. It's just trying to give the best product I can to whoever's uh, ready to have a listen. Um, and uh, as you say, new album is was out uh, actually around, um, I think it was, uh, yeah, last, late last year and uh, the last chance to learn the twist. And uh, it's still people who want to talk to me like yourself about this particular record, which is always encouraging because there's no reason why anyone should pay attention to a 73 year old, for goodness sake, making music. I mean, granddad, get out of here, you know. So it's very gratifying to uh, have some support and people who enjoy it, man. Oh, it's brilliant to talk to you, Graham. And you mentioned there Dave Robinson, a very nice guy. I believe he's from Stiff Records. Yeah, um, you can check out my interview with Dave Robinson as well with Johnny Foster from Hardwick Circus on my podcast, Logan Sons Good. Off. Yeah, lovely. Uh, and as well, Graham, sorry, um, just for those who haven't watched the interview, make sure to check that out. But um, you just... The, the kind of idea that you had there regarding filler, that uh, there's no filler on the album, I think that's a really great way to think about music, that you worked really hard on each track and there isn't meant to be any fillers. I really love that attitude. Um, so now you can see why Graham Parker went on to become a great musician, everyone. But um, you were saying there that you were around a lot of nearly beat bands and stuff like that in the 60s. They were all on the rise, such as the Beatles and everything, they were dominating the music scene. Um, how did you originally get into this type of music? Well, it's it's basically because I, I grew up in Surrey. I was born in London, but grew up in the county of Surrey, um, which is about 35, it was about 35 miles sort of southwest of London, but London seemed quite a long way away at the same time. Yeah, not quite, you know, so... And... Um, and, and you, it was really like these these groups were such a breath of fresh air, all of those new groups. And for my age group, it was so incredibly exciting. So we, everyone was, you know, kids were into music, into into wanting to look like these people as well. You know, to, to, it's fashion. There's a lot of fashion involved with music, however good or bad the music is anyway. Fashion is part of it, I suppose. Um but it was just compelling to to really hear these most exciting uh, versions of, of stuff. And a lot of it was from America. They might have been English white guys, but they're playing a lot of black music influence. And so um, that was a natural thing in, in, in Britain. You know, uh, people don't always know that that a lot of those those blues acts that have been, you know, that were like 70 when I was a kid, some of those people were, they couldn't get arrested in America for many, you know, they'd come to England and play a lot. There was all kinds of classic blues acts that would come here and to Europe. And, and that, that influence was uh, evident with all those those bands that we heard. I mean, some overtly like Spencer Davis group, you know, there's Give Me Some Loving and stuff. There's really R&B, soul music in there. So uh, that was another um, addition to you know, when you realize where all this music, a lot of this music was coming from, and plus doing it, but the English version of, of American music has a tougher, grittier edge, I suppose, um, which makes it our own. It, you know, it makes it our own and makes it relatable. And so, 
you know, you got, you got an idea of um, quality as well as inspiration from those people. Um, although they, uh, they, some of those people worked at a higher, much faster pace, like the Beatles making, you know, make an afternoon, uh, an hour in an afternoon. But uh, they were probably, you know, touched with a bit of genius there. Most of us aren't. Wow, though, that's, and it's an incredible time to grow up in. And then apart from beat bands, obviously you mentioned there uh, earlier uh, when I asked about what kind of music uh, was like when you were saying about yourself. Um, you mentioned that your brothers and your cousins and your family didn't really listen to that kind of music. So what kind of music were you kind of musically influenced from them then, if they were more into different right. music? Well, uh, yeah, good. I didn't have any brothers or sisters, but older cousins, quite, quite a big family, quite a, a few cousins. And um, uh, my sort of nearest, a good friend, really, my older cousin, Barry, he he had a bit of the, the teddy boy look. He wasn't really into it that much, but that was, you know, a few years older than me. Very different idea of music. But what I grew up with that my parents had, you know, a sort of um, a gramophone or something, a record not a radio, a transistor radio or whatever it was they had, wireless radios. And they were like bits of furniture, you see. And um, watch, before the Beatles, before that, this, before all those groups came along, it was a lot of American music. It was Bing Crosby and Perry Como and um, uh, Nat King Cole. So there was jazz influence as well that uh, I think seeped into my blood. It always, you know, when you hear those things, that, that's even before all the beat music type of stuff. And that plays that plays a part of any any musician who's going to be a writer. You're basically soaking up everything. It's absorption absorption from a very early age. If you go are going to be inclined to be a writer, a creator, or just a you know, or a, a musician, don't not just a musician. Musicians are the most important thing. Um, so you're going to be absorbing even before you've got a musical instrument. It's it's one of those things, and other people are not going to have that talent, so they won't be absorbing in the same way. Uh, so so it started from the very, you know, just music was always something that inspired, was close to me. And, and most people, isn't it? Most people like to tap their foot to a bit of music, and some people have all kinds of, you know, all kinds of favourites and things they love, but they're never going to be musicians. So it wasn't much different from anyone else, but before all that stuff, it was a lot of that American radio, Danny Kay and, and uh, Doris Day. I love this stuff. I really loved it. Um, but as I said, it was when you were 13 and you needed to be part of a fashion and and, the, and those beat groups came along. And of course, then then you're concentrating your you're concentrating your um, your listening to, to that kind of music. But, but I still think from what before those those pre-Beatles times seep into my work more to this day than ever. There's a few things on on Last Chance to Learn the Twist that, you know, have some very jazz, a sort of soft jazz kind of some swing. It's swing music. You know, I liked a lot of the Busby Berkeley films, um, which had all this kind of music, Harry Warren and Al Dubin, these kind of writers were writing this, um, these, this music. It's a very, you know, showy music stuff, but some of it really had a lot of swing to it. I've always been attracted to that because it sort of relates to R&B, jazz and, and blues. They all relate to each other. Um, 
so that that seeped into my work a lot and i lean on that quite quite heavily in ways that not even i quite understand sometimes it's just it's collective we absorb you know i see that makes a lot of sense and you were mentioned there earlier about um where after the beatles original success you actually started a band with your friends which is originally called the deep cut three which then was uh, yeah. renamed the black rockers but why did you want to start a band well, because it was exactly that time. It was like, quick, I want to look like those guys. You know, I want to grow hair long and um, not play football and get covered in mud. Which, you know, that was that was kind of your, the sort of way out of working class to become a star footballer, which, of course, for 99% of people is impossible. Um, but music, it seemed, hey, maybe we've got a chance at that. So it was just, it just, grew like a virus for people to pick up guitars or drums so you'd always have a kid around the corner who got one snare drum another kid like i knew who had a plastic Elv guitar with elvis presley written on it with one string and so he okay he's the bass player you know so i the the deep cut three there was three of us and either we added the drummer or added the bass player i don't know um and and then it was the black rockers where we had all these black gear on and we had the Beatle haircuts by then. I was like just just about not even 13 I don't think and we actually played in front of people. I say played with quotation marks because none of us could play although I think I'd learned a few little tunes like everybody learned TV scene tunes like Zed Cars maybe or you know whatever it was <laughs> the, the third man down 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 people learned that on the guitar so we're all struggling away but you know I, I really didn't lack I, I really lack the um sort of uh what it takes to to burrow into it and do it for as a lifestyle i mean i was 13 i lived growing i grew up in nature i was just as happy being immersed in the woodlands and stuff and going fishing as music so i had a, 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 i had a wide variety of, of life really you could put it that way uh, but it, it just seemed like what a cool thing to you know well we didn't have the word cool then i don't know what we would have said what a marvelous thing, or something. What a, I don't know what we would have called it, but what a good thing it would be to be in a band and be, you know, somebody. And so that that seeds kind of planted very early. But I forgot the 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 uh, important bit, which is you have to learn to play, and you have to really learn. Even though, in my crude way, I wrote a song when I was about thirteen, and and uh, the Black Rockers probably tried it. We did some shows actually. If you were shows quotation marks here which were in a, a local garage. My friend, uh, his dad owned a garage and there was all these dead old houses that were attached to it. And we got the run of them. And um, me and the, the Black Rockers would go upstairs in one of these abandoned houses, run down and jump on a table. And already one of them's younger sister had collected threepenny bits, you know, threepence from kids. And they, they were all sitting there and they'd kind of scream at us because, they, you know, that's what you're supposed to do to a rock band when you're 12. 11 even, the, the girls would start screaming. We couldn't play a note, really. We just got to bash around. Uh, so it was you know, it was fun for a very short while. It just, it, there was no background to it. There was no, you know, no, no talent, really. Just just maybe I might have some if I did knuckle down and worked at it, you know. That's brilliant. But uh, actually, you were mentioned there around 13 or 14, you did that. But at 15, uh, you started to actually enjoy 
um, and he started to get a lot more into soul music, including musicians such as Otis Redding. Um, but how did you originally get into soul music? Was it a friend or did you hear it on the radio or how did it come to you? Well, yeah, I think it it crept through with a few people you might have, I might have run into uh, a bit of an underground kind of thing in the 60s, but not quite because, uh, and, you know, around that time of the, the Be I mean, the Beatles did a song, um, Please Mr. Postman, which was an American song. Uh, Twist and Shout was a famous song that the Beatles did, which was, I think the Isley Brothers first did it. That's an American soul act. So it was there, but I'd also probably heard it on the on the radio and loved it. It just wasn't exciting as the fact that, you know, um, some of the people in the top rock bands like Liv came from Twickenham, you know, some of the Rolling Stones just up the road from me. So that seemed closer to us, obviously. Their version of it was closer to us kids. But it was always, it always seemed to be there, black music from America, from, from when I was, you know, younger than the Beatles and the Stones. It was, it was there. And soul music, the Motown, you know, really hit so big in, in, the, in the 70s, I suppose, 60s, 60s, really. Yeah, and 70s. So that, and, and I, I first, I heard, I think it was, I'll be there, reach out, I'll be the four tops. I thought that is the most exciting thing I've ever heard beyond the Beatles and the Stones. And and um, uh, and the Stones' first album was a lesson, really. It was like a, going to school for, for all these, you know, who are these names? Chuck Berry and Otis Spat, whatever the names, all the songs they were covering on the first album was was blues. But so you got that and there was just the Supremes and you, you didn't need much of that. And soon I was, you know, 15 or 16, maybe going to these clubs that would have afternoon sessions where you'd go and just dance and packed out halls um, to soul music, almost exclusively soul music or, or ska. There was ska, Jamaican ska. So it was always, it was, it was, you know, no secret in Great Britain. At that point in time, these these this kind of music was popular. Some of it cracked open into the top ten and all that stuff and had hits, but a lot of it was a bit lower down. And you know, being fifteen or something, it's like you feel pretty cool that you know who the Scatterlights are and Prince Buster and the All Stars. That's a pretty cool thing, because that wasn't mainstream particularly. Even though you know a few hits here and there, they they crept up, but a lot of that wasn't mainstream. So it was like we were part of a a cult, a club you know, kids who like that kind of stuff and had their haircuts to go with it, you know, and the, the smart suits and all this kind of thing. So that's so very influential. That music just, Otis Redding just did me in. I, I was 14 and I'd, I'd sit and listen to the one album I had by him that, again, an older cousin had given me. And uh, it just, just transformed me, really. I think it put the seed in me that I've got to do something one day. It took me a while, but... You know, got there. Wow, I see. That makes a lot of sense. And then um, now we've been speaking a lot about inspiration and music influences, but I'd like to move on to um some of your own music, especially with Green Parker and the Rumor. So when you first began your journey with Green Parker and the Rumor, uh, just before you released Howl and Wind when you were recording and such, did you see? Did you have a direction that you wanted the band to go in? Um, well, I was, I'd, I'd never played with a real band of that caliber. As my life had gone along, I'd, I'd jammed with a few hippies and things, you know, when I was in that kind of scene. And 
but no real discipline. I, I seemed to be the only one who had any discipline, and that's what I was trying to work on by the time I was 20. You know, I couldn't stand people sitting around with people noodling on guitars. It was like, no, I, I need I need to be the director of things here. So I had to back that up with the songs. By the time that uh, Dave Robinson basically had put those guys around me from bands that had broken up, who became the rumor, uh, I had very strong songs, but um, I really didn't know how to um, organize a band or how to do that. So these guys had experience. Dave had experience, and I got an instant record deal from one song being played on Radio London on the Charlie Gillette show. But I really didn't know how to interact with a band. Um, but uh, the band members knew how to do this, so they put a lot of input into helping me um, uh, move the songs in a direction that worked for a band. Uh, they, they, the songs, it's amazing, they did, they did hold up quite well on their own with just me on a guitar, but that needs interpreting. And I didn't really know quite how to get to grips with that. And these guys did. So um, I learned very quickly from, from you know, musicians who would, some of whom were a little older than me and, and had a huge, incredible amount of experience. I'd had nothing, frankly. When I walked into that studio, I'd had very little. I'd been with a publisher for a little bit and they had a studio and a recorded song so I had an idea of the studio but I hadn't played live I hadn't really done a gig in front of people I didn't know what monitor system was I didn't really know what these things on the stage were when I did my first gig those are the things that you're supposed to use to hear yourself and I just followed what everybody else in the band said. It was all like, oh, put some snare, can I have some snare in the monitor? So the, there I am on my first gigs in London with all these, these class musicians who were quite known in London and other places. And I don't know how to, what, what to say to a monitor man. What, what, what do I say? So I did what everybody else did. And in the end, I forgot my voice and didn't, I, you know, I could barely hear myself. I thought, well, this is what it's like, I guess. You have to hear everybody else, but not yourself. That's weird. But anyway, yeah, you know, that was my group. That was how green I was. So um, it was great to have the musicians of such experience um, to, because I had a variety of songs. They went in different directions. The first songs are Howling Wind. There's, there's a kind of swing grooves. There's um, the, the re deep reggae groove, the anthemic of reggae groove of Don't Ask Me Questions. Um uh ballads like gypsy blood and so, there's a variety i all, all already had that's what the, what the what i'm saying i didn't want to be making records until i was ready for prime time as it were and howling wind was ready and it had a variety of songs and that's that album is still without me um thinking about it but but it really kind of is my template there's still you can still hear I'm the same guy in Last Chance to Learn the Twist. I've made a lot of albums, so some of them have gone this way and that way. There's been all kinds of directions. But um, it's still, I think, um, easily easy to understand how the guy, whoever he was, made Howling Wind and also made Last Chance to Learn the Twist. Yeah, that, that's actually very interesting. And um, when you were releasing your music and releasing singles and when you were be getting onto the scene and was there ever a moment when you realized that your music was becoming very popular um well it i got lucky in the beginning because there was a bit of hole in the music scene for 
um, if you can use a very corny term, which limits things a bit, angry young man kind of thing. Uh, there wasn't a great deal of that. And a critic's always like an angry young man now and again. And I was kind of the first out of the box of what followed, really, with that harsh interpretation and singing, if you could call it that. Um, and, and and songs that had a bit of, you know, they had a bit of angst in them, I suppose. So, some some people thought of them as having a political bent, which there was certainly social commentary on in them, even though I was uh, politically naive, frankly, to be honest with you. Um, but somehow I could grasp it in songwriting. That's one of the great things about songwriting. You may not have to be an academic. You don't have to be an academic to pick up on, you know, which way the wind's blowing in society and in you know politically you don't have to be an academic you you know you can feel it and interpret it and, and make sense out of it and say something valid so there was a lot of scope a lot of different things in the songs and and it it was uh, it was a bit of a hole there in the in the market i suppose and without thinking of it it was nice to have um that kind of excitement to start with we weren't ignored let's put it that way and within months of of being a band and having a record out we were in america we were touring in America. You know, I might have been the back of a station wagon getting gigs as we went along, um, but we, that was the first in the first year of the career. Our career, we went there twice, uh, and that was really Dave Robinson said, "We're going to get you over. There's going to be a lot of people who sound like you. They're going to be copying you. We're going to get you to America first. That was that was the thing he said to me. So I said, I'm, "I don't know, whatever." You know, so off we went and um, played in Holland as well. So. Uh, it, it was a pretty good start, really. I mean, having a major record deal, it wasn't like I had to struggle. I, I, the struggling went on before that with trying to be a good writer. You know, the, the grunt work, as I like to call it. Um, but that was that was enjoyable as well. I can't, I can't say it was like being having your hand chopped off. It wasn't, you know, that it was hard work, but it wasn't that bad. You know? <laughs> it wasn't like I wasn't a coal miner, you know. Yeah, I understand. And actually, um, your music has made a deep impact on a lot of people. And in an interview, Joe Jackson said, Graham Parker, I really like. I think he's very genuine. How does it feel to have inspired someone like Joe Jackson like that? How does that feel? Um, well, that's, yeah, it's, it's, it's. It didn't sort of surprise me at the time. I guess I was a bit, you know, if, you, if you're going to be in this business and push yourself into these positions of being a rec recording artist and a man who stands on stage, you better have um, a bit of, um, you know, schutzpah, as it were, a bit of more front than Blackpool, you know. Um, and I, that's not really my style. I was more of a um introvert ex extrovert a bit of each i could flip from one thing to other probably quite schizophrenic really without being a, a real schizophrenic I'd, um <laughs> but yeah there's a polarity i think without being bipolar there is a definite <laughs> polarity to being a creative person it's a bit like um you're a bit creepy really it's a bit creepy you're sort of observing the world and you you know you're you don't quite know you're doing it, but I've always felt outside of everything. I've always felt it's one step removed from everyone and everything. It's it's um it's not it's kind of a strange position to be in, um, as well as being a gregarious person. But I'm still one step separate. It's just it's just a thing you carry with you, I suppose. Um, so it's a bit yeah, it's a bit it's a strange game, really. Um, 
but you just have to get inspiration where you can and not not kind of count it. Sorry, I've forgotten your original question, the basis of it, but I think I've worked around it to some degree. <laughs> Do you know what? It was a great answer. It, it was really, really, really inspiring. Um, but do you know what? You've played uh, many concerts with The Rumour and you've done many venues and you've done everything. And one thing is you've actually played for a television show, which is Top of the Pops, which is an incredible TV show. Um, so yeah. you've done everything with The Rumour. But what was that like to be on Top of the Pops? Well, it was, you know, it's one of those shows you love to hate. Well, we did in my day. You love to hate it because... It showed the kind of truth about the what people were buying, and it wasn't. It was, the truth was quite ugly sometimes. Um, it didn't really suit people like me who had that the taste in sort of things that were, you know, kind of underground. Often, you know, including you know, the more prog rock hippie stuff that was often LP based and not, you know, they didn't. Some of them didn't release singles. Some of those bands, you know, the freak bands, flying the freak flag. It was yeah. like that was uncool, man. You know. Um, so I came through, you know, a lot of those traditions where it, it's, it shouldn't be on top of the pops, but of course you can't wait to get on top of the pops. That's the truth of it. You know how uncool it is, but man, you've got to be on there. I don't care who you are, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, uh, however, or, or me, whatever, whatever seriousness you feel about music. And I'm so serious and I'm so good. Um, that's beyond that's below me, but no, I want to be on top of the pop. So it was quite exciting, man. It was just there I am being beamed into my parents' home, you know. And there was other stuff like uh, a concert at Golders Green, which me and the rumor did, uh, some theater in Golders Green that was televised and in 76, I think that was maybe just 77. So we it was just a great easy start, and also we'd be going to doing John Peel radio sessions. Oh, great wow. people like that yeah but the bbc so that happened very very quickly i got that kind of lucky credibility um more press than chart action frankly um but it was it was made it opened the door for us to be on all kinds of things so we had a few records squeaked into the top 30 and 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 that that was like um a sort of triumph that you're also a bit quiet about. You're sort of ashamed of stopping the props here. But at the same time, when you were late for the show, me and the rumor late for the show, I said, sorry, we're a bit late on stage. We were just at top of the pops. Like, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have been showing off, you know. Mm -hmm. Because it was, it was that important, really, to be, if you're in the charts, you want to be on top of the pops. You don't want to miss it, you know. Yeah, that's brilliant, though. Um, and then... You actually, as well as the rumor and the figs and everything, um, you also have a solo career. So, what inspired you to go solo? Um, well, uh, it's because the songs I write, I write them alone. There's no one else in the room, um, and uh, there's no yeah. bands around. There's no musicians. It's just me. Those are my songs, and that's how I got my record deal. It was signed with my name on. So I've always been a loner, but not a loner, a gregarious loner, as it were. But um, as I get the bipolar issue of being an artist in any any shape or form, perhaps. So, I, I you know, it's it always, there's different ways of expression. Um, the rumour was a fabulous way of expression. It was just 
great for the time because they wanted to be as intense as I wanted to be at that point in time. No monkeying around, no no uh, navel gazing or tuning up on stage. It was just boom, full blast. And we, we all wanted to be that, to be very efficient, get the records done, put them out there, bang them down. And so that was a, a nice, a fabulous start. But uh, after that, I wanted to see what my work would sound like with different musicians. So that's what I've done ever since. I've hired bands like The Figs, who are a unit in their own right, but only done one album with them, but worked with some of their musicians, especially Mike Gents, musician, writers. Uh, we've done duo, lots of duo gigs with different people, people backing me. Um, Tom Freud is another great one. And some of the rumor guys, Bob Andrews and, and uh, uh, Brinsley Schwartz, a guitarist in the room. I've done duo shows, a lot of them. And is my, you know, the next thing I'm doing is USA doing a bunch of solo shows. And um, I've turned it into my, you know, a, a, a form which I'm very good at. And, it, and it's amazing to be solo on stage to reinvent your songs that are from now, you know, pushing 50 years ago, um, to reinvent them. To, they open up, they give playing solo has given me so much more scope in my recording as well. I think the last couple of albums just uh, they have that that looseness that I've developed in playing. It's not so uptight as it was, it was always like, oh, scared stiff, I'm gonna mess it. You know, it's now I, 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 can, I can do a mellower song in a mellower fashion, still sounding like me. It's not gonna sound soft, particularly because I'm not very good at that, but. Uh, the, the scope is endless with solo and you reinvent yourself all the time um, and open the songs up into a different place. So I play solo a lot, but make records with musicians that are are very well, um, you know, it, it's very well considered, the musicians that I use. Um, and the, the last two albums, Martin Belmont, guitarist of The Rumour, who plays on Last Chance to Learn the Twist, has uh, helped me get good musicians based in London so that I can uh, be really lazy and go up to Rack <laughs> Studios on the bus, takes five minutes, or walk up there and do albums just up the road from where I live. Um, uh, that, that, that's always good, you know, and make other, make other musicians get on the tube and travel. So it, it's, it's, it's really, they're very well-considered mus musicians that are perfect for my music right now. And that's how you got to deal with it. What are you writing right now? What does it feel like? What are mus musicians can I imagine on this? What sound? And, and I'm creating the entire sound in my head as I'm writing, you know, as I know I've got a good song, this is what's happening now. That wasn't happening in, in the 70s when I was preparing for the Rumor album. I wasn't there yet with that kind of thing. Now, um, I've done albums where I played the bass and the stringed instruments. Um, so I, I can cover a lot of ground in a different way. But, you know, what you don't, what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to be screaming like I used to be because it ruined my voice then and it would ruin it now. <laughs> I've learned to sing a lot more over the years. You know, it's still, it's a learning process, everything, learning process. Okay, I see. And then where you mentioned their last chance to turn the twi twist. What was it like um, recording this new album? A uh, breeze, really, um, in actual fact. Um, as Jim Russell, the drummer, said, I, he said to me, I enjoyed every second of that. And we cut 14 basic tunes with drums, bass, some a bit of lead guitar and uh, 
acoustic and vocal. Now, that's one thing I've learned over the years. If you want to sound as good as you can do, and you're in a, basically you write your songs largely on an acoustic guitar, capture the vocals and the acoustic live on two mics in the studio. You know, because we used to go back like a month later, you know, I used to, that was the way it was done, and sing the songs before it was rough vocal, scratch vocal, not good. So I'm doing things live from that point of view. And we did it at Rack Studios up the road, the old Mickey Mouse studio, still going strong. And we were there for seven days. And by the time the fifth day came along, I was getting the keyboard player in Grant Watkins. We had that much done. And I was doing wow. a lead guitar overdub. So there's 14 tunes that were ready to be added to, right? ready to have the keyboards added. And then the next thing, the girl singers, I went to a smaller studio that cost less because this, this stuff costs money, you know, these days. And records aren't in the heyday of sales, let's put it that way. And so um, I, I just try and work efficiently like, like that. And I want musicians who are the same because they can hear the song beforehand. They hear me on the guitar playing it, a demo. You know, they, they get the gist of it. So no one needs to be uh, wringing their wrists about it or, you know, worrying. It's just... And we we work together very very quickly. Be doing a cut, you know, and and listen to it. Say try this, try that. Musicians would say to each other, "Why don't you try that?" And I'll try that. And boom, we got a track down. Like two or three takes, two or three run throughs. Usually on the second one, and we we never rehearsed. We never went in as a band and rehearsed playing the songs for last chance to learn the twist. They just heard them, my demos of them, me. Me and the voice largely, with a maybe a little overdub here and there, guitar solo or something. Um, a breeze, it was a breeze. That's that's what happens when you get musicians who understand what you're doing at that point in time, and you're impressing upon them what you're doing, and they they bring it to you. They're going to bring it to you. People like working with me, especially you know, especially the people who like like efficiency, and have a lot of feel as well. Beautiful feel these musicians have on Last Chance to Learn the Twist. It's just absolutely great finesse and great warmth to their playing. And they're playing my songs. They're not playing over them. They're not playing at the side of them. They're playing with me in the studio. And even wow. the overdubs, even the overdubs, they're playing with me. They're in, they're in with what I'm doing. It's brilliant though. And if you actually want to have a listen to Last Chance to Learn the Twist or buy it on vinyl, make sure to check out Big Store Records or Bandcamp or Spotify and make sure you have a listen because it's brilliant. So now before we go, Graham, I want to ask four just quick fire questions. Yep. So first of all, how do you feel music has changed from the past to now? Um, well, how does how has it changed? Um, the industry changes. That's kind of a constant, really. It always has been, even though it was. It's a slow trickle sometimes, and you don't quite notice it. But suddenly, it's not just vinyl anymore. It's CDs. You know, those kind of or it was cassettes, and then it's streaming. Those kind of changes. They're gonna. They're just gonna happen. Um, as far as making music is concerned. There are, there are just millions of bands doing stuff that's not far away from what I do. There's millions of songwriters doing stuff that's not far away. There are other people who have, uh, you know, they're, they're electronica or, you know, whatever it is. Um, uh, that, that, kind of music, that kind of stuff. I think it's great. I think it's really, I think it's pretty healthy, frankly. I think it's pretty healthy. I mean, 
it's harder for young people to break through in any meaningful way. I got lucky. I was in a lucky window of opportunity. And so were a lot of people that followed me and a lot of people before as well. Um, that's, that's not so easy now. I don't think for, for a lot of young people, you can make great music. It can be entirely missed by everybody, frankly. Um, so I, I, I got to feel lucky about that. It's harder now, but I, I and so it, 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 there's a lot of things that music changes because people do different things with it, but still and all, there's a lot of people doing stuff that is basically, there's a guitar, there's the drums, bass, and you can hear the influences of whatever it is. Music from the 60s, music from the 50s even, music from the 70s. Um, it's, it's a wide open field. Do, do what you feel, do what, do, what, do what you love the most, I suppose. Be, express your influences because we all have them, we're all absorbing, you know. Yeah, I completely agree with that. That's a great way to put it. Um, and now instruments. Which different instruments do you play? Uh, I'm pretty limited. Um, I never bought, I never quite got the handle of keyboards, which is unfortunate, really. I should have done. And uh, um, so it's basically guitar, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, bit of lead, you know, but rhythm, rhythm electric. And I've played bass on quite a few of my albums, but um, at the moment, I prefer some other guy getting their fingers torn to shreds with the bass strings. They're thick. It's hard work, man. Let me tell yeah. you. I found that out in a hurry. And I thought, <laughs> okay, I'm going to play bass on this album. I was like, oops, that hurts. It hurts when I'm playing guitar. You know, I've got calluses here. I'm, I'm working on them for the tour. They're getting there. Um, but I, those things I can kind of handle. Um, I'm no good at jamming, really. Somebody said, come on stage. And it's like... Uh, oh what yeah yeah i gotta bluff that pretty heavily i'm not i'm not a real jammer I'm, I'm not a soloist per se i can solo uh lead do lead guitar solos in the studio as long as i've worked them out pretty good at home 80 uh, maybe 60 percent and when the red light comes on i do things that amaze me it's like wow i can play that you know but on, i wouldn't like to be on stage playing trying to play lead guitar particularly i play it a little bit here and there not good so uh, that's that's pretty much it. I, I I have I've got limitations. That's why I, you know, hire musicians, which of course is a good thing because you have those different feels going on in your record when you use musicians. Wow, that that's even still though to know that yeah you can play the bass, but you're focusing on the guitar. That's really great that you're focusing on the one instrument. Um, because yeah. I know myself, there's a bass guitar there. And there's a guitar there. One of the the bass guitars, my dad's, and I was used to mess around with the bass guitar. But I mainly play acoustic guitar and electric guitar now, because my my fingers are are tiny, so it's nearly impossible to play the bass. Um, but last two, last two questions are: first of all, do you have any recommendations music wise? Are there any uh albums that you're listening to that you'd like to recommend to people? Uh, well, before I answer that, I say a good choice with acoustic guitar, because like a piano, it's a whole instrument in a way that a bass isn't. Or, you know, I don't mean to offend bass players there, but uh, these are good instruments for, for songwriting. If you're going to branch, if you're going to get into that, Logan, by the way, um, that, you know, you could, you've got the complete thing with both of those, a keyboard or an acoustic guitar. Um, as for music, me, my taste... 
Um, I hear a lot of good stuff. There's, a, you know, and a lot of stuff that I'm just not interested. Um, my onus now is really on my own music. I don't, uh, I don't listen to, I don't follow anything. I don't really follow any, I don't follow any of the people who came along at the same time as me or after particularly. I don't hear a lot. Uh, I'm more of a, I've always been a reader. So I've usually got four or five books on the, on the, on the go. I've got about six at the moment because people keep giving me to, for, for Christmas. Um, and I got a Kindle, you know, with usually two or three books on at the time going, you know, batting from one to the other when I go, I mean, some of the things I'm reading, I'm reading Barbara Streisand uh, autobiography, even though I've never been a Streisand fan at all. Uh, I, I thought, well, she's got some nerve. She wrote an autobiography, a thousand pages. So I, I, better, yeah. I, better, I better check it out. But on the Kindle, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, the Kindle is the musician's <laughs> friend. You know, a digital reading is really for traveling musicians. It's excellent. Um, sit at home maybe with a book, although I need an electron microscope to read the print these days. Um, and so I, I don't listen to a lot of great deal of music and, and TV. You know, it's it's sickening now. You've got Netflix and all these, got these amazing shows and they keep showing them. They keep coming out with them week after week. You know, it's like three-part documentaries on some murder that has never been solved from 50 years ago. Oh, I've got to watch that. Um, so I, I don't listen to a lot. I listen to my own music after I've made it. You know, I listen to, okay, is this, you know, what are the mixes? Mixes. And just now I've been listening to music again, my own stuff, because uh, I did a, a, a tour with the live band of the, the basically the, the the Gold Tops and uh, two girl singers, Ladybugs, and we recorded. It got recorded at one gig, so I've been mixing that, or sitting and letting the engineer mix it, and then bring it home and you know listen to it and make adjustments. Um, somehow I don't I don't really seem to have the need or the will or the interest to be listening to a lot of acts. Um, and I just hear things that are really good. So I can't sort of recommend any. I'm sure people could recommend a lot to me. But I'm not following it, man. <laughs> and, and I'm practicing for, you know, it's also an age thing. You know, I can't walk and chew gum at the same time. So if, if I got some gigs coming up, I better be 100% trying to concentrate on my music, get my act together, get my fingers moving and sing pretty decently. So I'm really thinking that's my sort of concentration. Um, and yeah, I just don't listen enough for enjoyment. I should do, I suppose. I've got lots of things on my iTunes. I buy music. I don't stream at all. So if I want something, I'm going to get it on iTunes. And that's a variety of stuff, but it usually comes from the 60s. And it's usually progressive rock. That's basically what I'm listening to. If I listen to something, it's going to be, it's going to be King Crimson or something like that. Uh, it's it's quite quite interesting to do that, really, and you know, blast it on the headphones. Jimi Hendrix, you know, electric electric lady lands. Oh man, panning the drums. Come on, bring it back. So if I'm listening to something, it's in a very indulgent way. Wow. That's actually interesting the way you explained that, that you buy music and don't stream music. That's really, really cool. And now for my last question, Graham, I have to ask, do you have any tips for musicians who want to get onto the scene or <laughs> just trying to be to um, write music? Um, I, you know, I my well, my my one of my current philosophies is uh, the last thing I need is advice. 
<laughs> the last thing I need is opinions. Thank you very much. I just do it. Uh, but I, but there again, I'm not new to the game, so I know I'm I'm pretty good at that, and I have a, and I have every right to say and think that because it works. Um, but I can tell that in my records and the quality of them and the songs. That's that's my feeling about it. I'll tell you if that if that goes wrong at any point, I'll get back in your show and say, Logan, it's all gone wrong. Can you give me some advice, anybody? Um, but I. I I, I I don't know. It's it's really corny. What can you say? Be true to yourself, I think. I think be true to yourself because you, if you're talented, you might get bombarded and get, you know, find yourself with people interested. They're always outside of you. They're not you. They suddenly feel like they're you and part of you, but they're not. They're outside of you. Always try and bear that in mind. And you don't have to be guided by anyone unless you feel 100% certain that this is right, that you need this. Um, if you're a songwriter, you should be cutting your own path a lot of the time. So I think just stick to that. And people will gravitate to you. Um, put yourself out there when you can, but people can gravitate to you. But um, uh, just stick to what's, what, what, what's true to you. If you start having nagging doubts that you're being led in a different direction or, or something is, you know, interfering with you, what's going on in your heart and mind. It's simple stuff. And I would give any young musician that. What do you feel? You know, is it, what do you feel about what you're doing? And I would also say to young musicians, okay, you've got 20 songs. You think you're going to be a star. No, scrap them, write 20 more. Keep putting them aside. You're not good enough. Trust me. You're unlikely to be. Write more. Keep dumping them. You're going, you're going to go through different fashions when you're young. That's great. That's the idea of it. Teenage, this, that, the other, early 20s. Um, keep writing. And, some, you know, if it clicks, it clicks. But I wouldn't hold too high an opinion of yourself until you've done a lot of uh, grunt work with songwriting or creating in whatever way it is. And then when you're ready to go, go, go for it full throat. I see. That is some incredible advice, Graham. And uh, I have to say... It's been amazing talking to you about everything from inspiration. Just, it's really, really cool. If you want to learn more about Grave, he's on Bandcamp. He's on Spotify. Make sure to check out Big Stir Records. You'll be able to buy um his record there, uh, Last Chance to Learn the Twist. And you can read all about him there as well. Um, and thank you so much for watching. Make sure to subscribe and like the video and share with your friends. If you or your friend is a fan of Graham Parker, but last but not least, thanks so much, Graham. It's this has been a great interview. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, I'm very pleased to hear that, Logan. Thank you uh, for your support and for having me on your show, man. Be very well. Okay, take care of yourself. You too, Graham. Bye, and have a Cheers. lovely day. Catch you later. Bye bye. Bye. you enjoyed listening to this episode of Logan Sounds Off. You can follow me on X, Facebook and Instagram at Logan Sounds Off. And don't forget to subscribe and not miss any more cool episodes. Bye guys!